You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Here's the word of God for us this morning. It says this, And as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were who, who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. I want to pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. When we ask God that you would come and speak to us, as we open your word, as we look at it, as we study it, as we think about what you want to speak to us, God, help our hearts to be open to hear from you. Well, Father, I, uh, I figure that each of us uh, walks into this room uh, facing different things from the week and in our lives, different kinds of barriers and opposition you might see, whether that be opposition in the form of people around us or our own behaviors, struggles in this life. But one thing I know is that you are the king who left the tomb empty. There is absolutely nothing that is impossible with you. 
And so I pray, Father, that you would come, that you would speak to those places of our lives that are, that are broken, that are hard. God, that you would soften our hearts, that you would do a work of mending and healing. And Lord, turn our, the attention of our hearts and our minds to the truth of a bloody cross, the power of an empty tomb, and the hope of eternity. God, I pray that you would come and do this and, and then some. We love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. So we've been studying through the book of Acts. Uh, it started in chapter 1, verse 1. I've just been studying verse by verse uh, through the book. This is kind of the way we roll here. Um, part of the reason that we do that is we, we like to just kind of get into some of the, the themes of each book and just follow the narrative and the, the teaching of the author of that book. And and primarily get at what God is wanting to say through a book, rather than just lifting texts out of place at times and out of context sometimes. So, so we've been here for a few weeks, and we're just now getting into chapter 4. And, and uh, you know what happened previously in chapter 3? Uh, if you're familiar with it, um, the, the apostles are going to church on a Saturday, probably, most likely then, uh, going to the temple and... There's a man who's not been walking, as you can tell from the end of the text, been about 40 plus years, is asking uh, for money, begging, and uh, had lost sight of the fact that what he really wants is to walk, uh, but what he needed at that point was money, and they say, hey, we don't have any money, silver and gold won't have, but I will give you this, I'll give you, I'll give you Jesus, get up and walk. And miraculously, this man is walking around, right? And that stirs up a thing in the crowd, and, and uh, pretty soon the, these apostles find themselves preaching a message about Jesus, and they're just centering on the gospel. And uh, that gets the attention of the religious leaders of that day, and that's where we're at today, is that part of the text. And the religious leaders of that day are pretty upset, um, for probably for various reasons. Uh, one would say, one of the main reasons is because they're preaching about the resurrection of the dead, which the group of Sadducees, which is kind of just a weird name, um, a group of Sadducees didn't believe in uh, the resurrection of the dead. And so, you know, in, in, in this day and age, you basically had four types of denominations, you could say. We know in, in our world today, there's a lot of them. Um, in this day at that time, I, I call them denominations, you had Pharisees. Uh, that was kind of one denomination. And then you had Sadducees. And then you had Zealots. And then you had Essenes. And, and those four groups kind of made up the spiritual temperature of Israel at the time. And what's taking place here, just like six weeks after the resurrection, and then, then you have the ascension, you get the day of Pentecost, what's taking place is Christianity is breaking through all of that. And it's taking the religious scene by storm. And uh, so they're a bit upset. And they're opposing um, the message of the gospel. They're, they're opposing Christianity. We must remember that those who were present there were actually the ones who crucified Jesus. And Peter is so bold to say that. Now, opposition to the name of Jesus is really nothing new, okay? And opposition to God is nothing new. Now, opposition to God has been around since day one, uh, since the Garden of Eden. Um, uh, we, we, we should probably remember that our battle, right, is not against flesh and blood, but it's against uh, spiritual powers in the heavenly realms and so on and so forth, right? And so, so when somebody opposes me in my ministry sometimes, and this has happened, um, I have to remember, and you have to remember, if you're a believer, and when somebody opposes you or treat, treats you wrongly because you are a believer, uh, it's not necessarily flesh and blood that's coming against you. It's a spirit that lives inside of them. And that spirit is opposed to the spirit that lives inside of you. This opposition, this war has been around since then. There's been a war between the seed of uh, the serpent and, and the seed of Eve. 
And, uh, and what comes through all of that is Jesus uh, rises as the victor, right? So opposition is nothing new in the, in the, in the grand narrative of the Scriptures. Um, human history is, is really absolutely littered with all sorts of stories. Saints who have faced what I would call the horror of hell's fury uh, as they, they sought and then they worked uh, to, to live in obedience to God, number one, but also to proclaim the name of Jesus on hell's doorstep. Uh, this is the picture of, of the church all throughout history. And you'll see a picture on the screen of a, of a woman. Uh, she's a missionary. Uh, she's modern day uh, for us. Her name is Helen Rosevere. May have never heard of her. I, I would encourage you to look up her story. I believe she's got a, I believe there's a, was an autobiography, uh, maybe a biography that's out there. A um, number of books, I think. Um, came across her story in a commentary I was reading this week. Helen Rosevere um, served as a missionary um, in, um, in Belgian Congo at the time, in 1964. It was a Belgian Congo. And as she was serving as a missionary, you can see this picture, she, she was very passionate about the children, especially in the orphans. She was, she was captured by, by rebels, and this is pretty graphic, so, um, so you know. She was captured by rebels, she was, and because of her faith, they tied her to a post in the middle of a, of a city, and they continuously raped her for three days straight. Brutal. A brutal, brutal story. She's very honest about it, uh, from my understanding in her books. And the way that she tells the story of what happened to her in her account of that experience, see, she, she has this uh, bold ability to proclaim Christ even through that kind of pain and suffering. I, I can't imagine it. To me, it's a horrific story. Um, and it, and it, it's really hard. Um, she says that uh, in the midst of suffering, that abuse during those three days, um, God spoke to her and comforted her. Um, and, and the basic truth that she proclaims is one that we've probably all heard, but it seems really detached, I think, when you hear it. Um, but it, we know it's true. She said the basic truth that God continued to speak to her over the course of those couple of days, as extremely painful as it was, is that God had a purpose in her suffering that was beyond her understanding. And that He's God. And that she's not. And that neither you and I are. And I think um, her, her response to that, the way that she writes about it, her response um, to that experience was to literally thank God for the experience. I don't know what was the outcome of the story other than that, other than what happened in her heart was to say, thank you, Lord, for the suffering that was brought into my life. Or who knows who became saved um, because of her suffering. And I think that's the way that she viewed it. And I see that same kind of boldness, that same kind of ability to look to God in those moments of opposition and suffering, though her story is unbelievably brutal compared to what we're reading today. Um, as I thought about that story, I thought, man, I, I have a tendency to whine and probably cuss and swear about things that are far less than what this lady experienced. And so the challenge to the, in, in the text to us, I think, is that. Like, what does it take for us to have that kind of boldness, that kind of courage, that kind of resolve, you might say, um, to walk through difficulty, pain, suffering, opposition, and still have our eyes locked on Jesus as the founder and the perfecter of our faith? How do, how do you do that? 
Because like I said, I, I, I just stubbed my baby toe on a chair, and I'm all sorts of off in la-la land in terms of sin. I'm not thinking that that's an experience that I should be thankful for. And that seems so minuscule compared to what she experienced. And I've never experienced what the disciples are experiencing in this text. I've had a few experiences, but nothing like that. Where does this kind of boldness come from? That's my question. First thing you notice when you look back at the text, and I think we want to try to answer the question, right? So let's just kind of work our way through the text, see what God says. First thing you see in verses 1 through 4 is, Peter and John get arrested. I don't know, a few of us in the room that have been arrested before. It ain't fun. It ain't fun. If, if you've never been there, I'm just going to tell you, it ain't fun. Luke tells us that as Peter and John are preaching in the name of Jesus, and they're preaching him as the one who was responsible for healing the lame man in chapter 3, as they're doing that, the leaders of the Jews become greatly annoyed. That's the... That's the phrase that Luke uses, greatly annoyed. I ordered something on the internet a while back, and, uh, and it was a pricey order. And um, it was hard to find the item that I was looking for. And it looked like I found the place that had it. Lo and behold, 24 hours, paid for it and everything, said it was being shipped. Lo and behold, 24 hours later, I get an email that says, sorry, your order has been canceled. Uh, we are out of stock. So I began searching for other places that had the thing that I needed, and six hours later, I'm still sitting in front of my computer, greatly annoyed, because nobody had the item I was looking for. I don't know what you experienced that greatly annoys you, but I can tell you that when Luke uses this phrase, greatly annoyed, the leaders of Israel at this time, are, are, they're, they're a lot more annoyed than just somebody who sat in front of their computer all day looking for an item. They're greatly annoyed, it says. Luke says that they're greatly annoyed with them because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now this makes sense because the Jews believed that they had killed Jesus, and after the resurrection they had done everything they could to cover up the fact that they lost the body. Uh, except for the truth is he, he revealed himself to more than 500 people um, plus over the course of a few weeks. And so they're greatly annoyed because there's still people talking about this Jesus whom they tried to kill, that they murdered. And so what do they do? They, they grab the apostles, Peter and John, they arrest them, they toss them in a jail cell overnight because it's getting late. Now, uh, Luke is really good to let us know that none of this is done in secret. And I find that interesting too when you're looking at the text. None of this was done in secret. It was done in actually broad daylight right in front of at least 5,000 witnesses. And I think that's just counting the men. So you got 5,000 dudes who have believed the gospel and they're standing there watching this thing happen. You know, in my mind, you don't do things like that in broad public, broad daylight in front of 5,000 people. You do that in a park somewhere off the beaten path and nobody sees what you're doing. But these leaders are they're so annoyed, they're so enraged that they're, they're overcome by it. So you've got 5,000 people there who have become believers. They're watching this happen. The question is, in this portion of the text... And Luke's, Luke wants to answer this question is, what, what, what happens? Like, what do you do when someone locks you up for doing something? 
When you get locked up for doing something, what do you usually do as the person who is locked up? Typically, the idea is you stop doing the thing that got you locked up in the first place, right? I've only been arrested one time. Most of you probably don't know that. I should have been arrested many more times. Most of you probably know that. I was only arrested one time, and it wasn't for anything really cool either. I bounced a stinking check and never paid it. And somehow that got me a, a warrant for my arrest. I got pulled over because I didn't have the tags on my car um, renewed, and so they arrested me. You know what I never did after that? <laughs> I never bounced another check. <laughs> I also made sure that I put plates on my truck when they expired. If it makes any of you feel better, this was before Jesus. Not that I stopped sinning after Jesus, um, but this was before Jesus. <laughs> The point is, usually, <laughs> like, and I'm pretty dense, okay, so I didn't bounce checks anymore. I did a lot of other things in those years following that I should have got arrested for that were far worse. So I can't even say here and tell you that I actually learned my lesson. What I'm telling you is I have a thick skull, and if you don't have a thick skull, um, if you got locked up or something, you'd probably walk out of there and go, I will not do that again. Um, not Peter and John. <laughs> not Peter and John. Uh, they continue preaching. They continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. The very thing that got them locked up in the first place, this is what they go back and do. Now you might start thinking, that seems really uncanny. How stupid are they? Let's read, right? You look at verses 5 and 12. What Luke tells us is that on the very next day, Peter and John are brought before the highest ranking officers. Okay? These are some of the most powerful and authoritative men in all of Israel. Peter and John are placed on trial. The, the, the word that's used is, uh, is, can be translated inquisition. Now, you might remember the inquisitions in uh, church history. People are getting burned at the stake, right? Um, people are getting crucified in, in earlier church history um, during some of those things. So this is kind of an early example of that. They, 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 are, they are inquisitive and questioning them about what is going on. And the question that's on everybody's mind on that high-ranking council, these men of power and authority, the thing they want to know is this, verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? It's interesting because the way that they viewed it, right, if you go back to those four denominations, so to speak, they believed that if you were not part of one of their groups, you had no authority to speak on religious things. Um... And the average person, I think, at this point, in this moment, if they're Peter and John, I think the average person is probably going to tap out. Okay? i got stories I can tell you of times I tapped out in the face of opposition. One of them, early on in my Christianity, I was probably six months, maybe a year into following Jesus, and still in some of the old patterns of my life in destructive ways, still learning, still growing, right? Still growing today, so... I remember going to a dinner one night, and most of y'all probably heard this story, going to a dinner one night for a, I was doing sheetrocking and a, working for a, a contractor, and, and he had given us free tickets to a comedy event he was doing at the bar that he owned, and Christy and I, we would get dressed up, and we get out for a, for a night, we actually find a babysitter for all of our crazy kids, and we're looking forward to a night out, and it's a prime rib and a free drink, and uh, supposed to be a good comedian, and, and pretty soon, I mean, 10 minutes into the show, this comedian is so raunchy that it's... It's hard to even laugh at that point. And just got grimier and grimier, you might say, as it went on. And at some point it was crazy because 
um, out of the middle of nowhere, he goes, hey, are there any Christians in the room? And I was like, oh, shoot. I'm looking around the room, ain't nobody raising their hands. And the whole time he was like, come on, seriously, there's got to be some Christians in the room, right? Are there any Christians in the room? I'm not raising my hand. Nobody's raising their hand. And his answer after that was, good, because you shouldn't be here anyways. And I was like, oh, can you imagine the shame that I felt? And nobody knew. I knew. I also knew when I walked out of there, similar to the story earlier, I never want to do that again. So there's been places where I've failed in this personally. I suppose you can probably find areas that you'd fail in this too. You might think about it. Every time we face temptation to sin, we're facing opposition to the message of Jesus in and through us, right? And so every time we tap out and give in to sin, we are in a sense doing exactly that. So I think the average person at this point probably does tap out, right? They apologize for ruffling some feathers. As soon as they get asked that question, hey, by what power, by what name do you do this? Who do you think you are? What right do you have to be here? Tap out, apologize, don't want to ruffle any more feathers. Let's smooth some things over, want to save my skin, right? That feels pretty natural. And really, if you think about Peter, because Peter's part of this story, and we've continuously gone back there quite a bit, but we know Peter's story. Six weeks ago, that's not a long time. Six weeks ago, he denies Jesus three times, curses Jesus to a young girl around a campfire, and then bails, right? Um, Not long before that, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, oh, you're the son of the king, You're, you're the Messiah, Good, this is what you should know about me. Peter, I'm going to get crucified, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back to life on the third day. And Peter is like, heaven forbid, Lord, that will never happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So Peter has this issue with, with like speaking things that he probably shouldn't speak often. And he also has this issue with being a coward at times when he shouldn't have been. You might remember Peter was also the one that pulled his concealed sword out of his coat, right? <laughs> and chopped off the ear in a time when, when, when Jesus did not want him to be pulling his concealed gack out. Okay, so <laughs> Jesus heals the dude's ear. Peter like, consistently has this issue of bumbling around and getting in the way of what Jesus wants to do. And yet here, six weeks later, what does Luke tell us? It tells us that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a key here. That he's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is enabling him, empowering him like dynamite, right? Because the word for that from Acts 1.8 is the word dynamis or dunamis, which means dynamite or dynamic power. So when you and I are lacking in the ability to be courageous, to stand firm against opposition, to stand firm against temptation, you can even push it out that far, I think, what we are lacking is the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. You think of your, you think of your being, right? Your, your, your mind and your heart, your soul. You think of that like a home that needs to be constantly kind of cleaned out and refilled with something good. Be like my refrigerator. If I don't clean that thing out often, it gets rotten, nasty food in it. But when I clean it, I've got to put good food in it. I can't just leave it empty. Because if I leave it empty, it's no good for anybody. In this sense, our hearts and our minds and our souls are very similar here. need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
that in a very supernatural, spirit-filled way, Peter answers that question of his captors, and what does he do? He preaches the same message that landed him in a jail cell the night before. Blows my mind. He's like, are you going to ask me that question? I'm going to give you the same message I've been preaching on the street the entire time. So he preaches the same message to them. And, 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 and all along, if you track back into Peter's messages so far that we've studied through, all the ones that have happened so far in the first four chapters, they all kind of have the same sense and feeling to them. He always points out the provocative nature of their sin. Hey, you crucified Jesus. That Jesus you crucified, he's the one who left the tomb empty, and he's the only hope you have. The man that you murdered that left the tomb empty, he's the only hope you have to be saved, so you better get right with God. That's Peter's message. And part of this message this time is that same Jesus is the one who healed the lame man. He's the one that did this work. He also uh, throws in something about cornerstones. Um, you'll notice that uh, towards the end of these verses. It says that this Jesus is the cornerstone of the building of Christianity. And he's like, hey, you in crucifying him, you rejected him. And there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved from the penalty and the power and the presence of your sin. Now the question for us in the text is, what do you do when someone like Peter is that bold if you're on the other side of the fence and you're facing down somebody who is that bold, that defiant in the face of opposition? Well, this is what the council does. You might remember reading it, right? The council devises a plan to try to shut their mouths. They're just going to try to intimidate them a little bit further and see if they can get them to shut up. That's basically where they head. Verses 13 through 17, Luke tells us that when the council witnessed Peter and John's, like their bold defiance, man, these guys aren't sitting down. They're still standing up. They're not shutting their mouths. They're still speaking. We locked them up overnight. We stood them in front of us. They're not intimidated. What do we do? And when they witnessed that, when they realized that they were not highly educated men, which is an interesting thing, they're just like, hey, these guys are just common men. They're not of any one of these four parties. They're just common. They're educated. They don't have any letters after their name. Fishermen. Common people. Tax collectors and so on and so forth. It says in verse 13 that, that the council was absolutely astonished. Right? It's that moment when you are so surprised. Like, how could this be happening? This seems miraculous. Because it is. They were astonished. And it says that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think what's happening there is that council is recognizing the same unflinching boldness that they saw in Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. You think about the story of Jesus and how he went to be crucified. And the scriptures teach us and tell us that for the joy that was set before him, he set his face like stone, like flint towards the cross. It's a picture of absolute determination. I will not be deterred. I know what my mission is. I know what the Father called me to do. And that's where I'm headed. And I'm full of joy in the midst of it, knowing what's laying ahead of me. And it's certain death. That's the picture of Jesus. And as this council is looking at these two disciples, I think in their minds they're seeing something very similar six weeks later. You have to remember, it's been only six weeks. And they're looking at these guys and they're going, yo, those were some dudes that were with Jesus. One of those guys denied him. 
and went running. And now he looks an awful lot like the guy we murdered on that cross. That's astonishing. That's the word that Luke uses. Council could, could also see the lame man. And this is another piece of the story that I think is fantastic because there's no getting out of this, right? There's no denying what just took place. The council could see the lame man standing right there and they were absolutely speechless because of that, it says in verse 14. So at some point, they're trying to shut the disciples up. At another point, they're completely astonished when they recognize, yo, these guys are with Jesus. They're acting just like he did. Oh, shoot, here we go again six weeks later. And then at another point in their little council, they're like, oh, my goodness, on top of that, this dude who was lame for 40 years is actually standing here. What can we do? Now we're speechless. But they can't backtrack, right? They have to try to hold their ground. So, so they do devise a plan to shut the mouths of the apostles. They think that they're just going to order them in verses 15 through 17 to speak no more to anyone in this name, the name of Jesus. I think they just figured that if we, they just tell them that and threaten them a little bit and intimidate them, that they'll shut up and they'll go away. I think their plan backfires, right? Final verses of the text, you see that Peter and John respond to this council with absolute fearless courage and boldness. You look at verses 18 through 22, and quick summary of what's taking place there is this. Luke tells us that after the council tries to intimidate them, tries to threaten them, what Peter and John do is they actually open their mouths rather than keeping them shut, and they basically state that they will not be silent. Why? Verses 18 through 20, summary, they're not going to be silent because they say this, we cannot cease to speak of what we have seen and heard. Now that phraseology is very important because it's the phraseology of a witness. A witness is called into court when they see an accident. And they're called to testify to what they experienced, saw, and heard. And it's the same language that is used all over the book of Acts because we know, right? And Jesus told his disciples, hey, head back to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and when he comes and when he fills you, what's going to happen is you're going to be filled with the Spirit, filled with power, and you're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, their own little backyard, Judea, Samaria, kind of this uncomfortable place because Jewish people, good religious people don't go to Samaria. It's a filthy place, right? We don't go to those dark, dirty places. All throughout church history, this means you don't go to bars, you don't drink, yada, yada, yada. We've tried to make that look at something like something that's not. The Judea Samaria is that second area, and then to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to testify to the power of God in and through you. What you have seen and what you have heard, you're going to speak about that to the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what they're doing. They say, hey, we can't shut up. We can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. We saw our Messiah crucified. We saw the tomb empty. We walked with Him. We, we watched Him ascend into heaven with this promise that, yo, I will be back. Not quite like the Terminator, but I will be back. Right? Better than the Terminator, because he's come back with a little sawed-off shotgun. He, I love that image. You all know I love that image. He comes back on a, on a white horse, robes drenched, the blood of the saints who have been martyred, tattoo on his thigh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords got a sword coming out of his mouth which stands for the Word of God. He's got lightning bolts coming out of his eyes which reminds us that he can see everything. When he comes back, he's coming back to make war. 
come out to make war on his enemies. I think of the story at the beginning of this message of that woman, that those men who did that to her never had an opportunity to come to the Lord and didn't actually submit and surrender to Jesus and receive forgiveness. You know what they get? They get the absolute, unrestrained wrath of God for all of eternity. You know what I think? I think that punishment fits the crime. For all of us who have received and believed and trusted, that wrath that was meant for us has been laid on the back of Jesus at that cross. And of that, the disciples cannot stop speaking. They can't stop talking about it because they experienced it. They knew it firsthand. They knew the depth of their own sin. And they knew the greatness of God's grace simultaneously. Personally, in this final moment here, when they say, hey, we cannot cease to speak of what we have seen and heard, I think, I think it's a moment that's pretty well played um, on their part. I doubt they tried to manufacture this in terms of the disciples themselves. Right? I don't know if they were smart enough. I remember, they were kind of dumb, uneducated men. At least that's the way it was put. Truth be told, they were probably smarter than most of us because one of the things you had to do was memorize the whole Old Testament just as a normal kid growing up in that culture. So... We'd be lucky in American culture just to get people together twice a week to study the Bible, let alone (laughs) memorize the entirety of the Old Testament. So so I don't think they were as stupid as we might think they are. But I don't think they necessarily planned this out, but I do think the moment is well played. I think it's a moment of absolute boldness and genius because the council kind of has to let them go. Why? Because that man who'd been lame for 40 years is standing right there. And the entire crowd, the text tells us, is praising God because of it. So at this moment, it's a very unique story because they do get set free. Um, I don't want us to think that this is the way that it always goes. I want you to remember that at the end of this story, all these disciples die horrifically. Peter gets crucified upside down because he doesn't want to be crucified like his Savior. And John, who's in this story, gets boiled alive in, I think, a vat of hot oil and doesn't die. And that sounds like a really pitiful existence. After that, gets exiled to Isle of Patmos, where he dies of old age at some point. The stories go on and on about the way these men died. If you look throughout church history, all the centuries of the way people died for their faith, it's a pretty horrific story. We live in a pretty sheltered society here. So I think it's hard for us to connect at times with this for that reason. Yet at the same time, I think it's, a, it's encouraging. And I think it's inviting too. Like, it makes me want to be like these guys. I don't know about you, but I want to be just as bold. I want to be just as courageous. So in conclusion, I don't know if that's where you're at too after reading this. Maybe you're thinking of some areas of your life where you're wanting to step up your game in terms of your boldness, your courageousness in the face of opposition. Whether that be physical opposition from somebody who's coming against you, whether that just be the opposition of, of Satan and sin. Because you got Satan, sin, and death, right, that we're always constantly facing. Satan comes to accuse, sin comes to tempt, death comes to taunt. And, and in the face of that kind of opposition, often it comes to us in the form of other human beings around us. Um, so I don't know what that's causing you to think about, but when I look at this story and I think about it, I 
I think about all the ways that I failed over the years. Think about the times when the Holy Spirit actually gave me the courage to just stand unflinchingly firm in the face of potential danger. I think of those different scenarios in my life. And I'm, like I said, I'm sure most of you can probably remember some of the same scenarios where you've either failed or, or succeeded and been victorious. Maybe, a, maybe you're thinking about a time when you're at a restaurant and the Lord prodded you and said, hey, maybe you ought to pray for that waitress or that waiter, and you didn't. Or maybe you're at a gas station and you're thinking about that. Or you see an old friend that not so much friends anymore and you want to try to bless them. And the Lord actually tells you, hey, go bless them. Even if they're being jerks to you, maybe you shy away from that because you don't want to deal with that pain. Again, these stories, these scenarios that I try to drum up in my mind, they're nothing, nothing close to what we've been reading in the text. and they're, they're nothing close to what that lady experienced. And yet, we still struggle. It's not meant to bring on unnecessary shame for us by, by thinking about that, but it's true, right? We walk this stuff out on a daily basis. The question is, is, where does that kind of boldness come from? Where do I get me some of that, right? Like a really good steak. When you experience it, when you see it, when you smell it, you want it. That's my hope is as we come down to the end, that's kind of where you're at. Like, okay, this looks good. Sounds good, kind of smells good. Yeah, I want that kind of boldness. Where do I get that? How do I do that? Here's what I think the answer is. I think the answer is found um, in verse 13. When you look at what the council saw in the apostles, I think that's the core of this passage. It's the core of the story, the key of the text. Luke tells us that the council was astonished, right? Surprised. They recognized what? That the apostles had been with Jesus. That might sound really simple, but I think that's it. They saw that these apostles had been with Jesus. The very same unflinching boldness that the council had seen in Jesus on the day of His crucifixion, that was what was shining through the faces of His followers as they stared down the barrel of their enemies' hostility and threats. They had been with Jesus. That's what enabled them to do this. That's the key to everything I think you could even say in the Bible, is to be in the presence of God is what will help you to stand firm in the highest and greatest of adversity. The apostles had been with Jesus as He was arrested. In a sense, they were with Him when He was crucified. They witnessed it. Though many of them ran and scattered, they still witnessed the brutality of that. They witnessed the resurrection. They saw Him come back to life. They stood at the beginning of Acts and watched Him ascend into heaven in power and glory. And the angels came down and said, what are you looking at? Get after it. Right? They witnessed that. And, and because the apostles had been with Jesus, they spent time with Him, they practiced being in the presence of God. What Jesus had done is exactly what He promised to do all along, which is to give His very own spirit of dynamic boldness to His disciples. And that enabled them to live in a different way. They're radically changed men now. It enabled them to proclaim the message of the Gospel with power because they had been with Jesus. Now again, I don't know what you're walking through today or what you came walking in with this morning, but I do know this. The answer is spending time with Jesus. And I'm not talking about like being a monk and going and living on top of a pole and 
taking yourself away from society. One of the major things that we preach and teach and hold to in our philosophy of ministry here at the well is you personally need to be in your Bible, reading it. Both small and large chunks, day by day, throughout the week, as the years go on. There's Bible reading plans you can find that will help you with that. But it's not just the cold, harsh, just reading of the Bible either. You let God speak to you through His Word as you read, and then you spend time praying back. And in fact, a better way to start is you start by praying, asking God, Hey God, I'm not going to understand what I'm about to read here. I don't know if I'm going to get much out of it. But I'm coming to you as a sinner who needs to hear from my saving God. Please speak to me. You start with that prayer, and then you read. And then you stop, and you contemplate, and you journal, and you take notes. <coughs> and you look for that one thing that God might speak to you. And after He's spoken to you through that piece of text, and you've got to go back, and you've got to look at how Jesus fulfilled that. If, if your Bible reading doesn't lead you back to Jesus every time, but it instead leads you to, gosh, I need to do these five things better, then you fall into something called legalism. It's not that we shouldn't get better, because we should. But spending time with Jesus isn't about getting your list of rights and wrongs straightened out. It's about getting your heart straightened out. It's about spending time with the one who is perfect, who came and died on a cross, though he knew all of your past sins, knows all your current sins, and the crazy thing is he knows all your future sins too. And he still chose to love you in that way, still chose to write the book of faith on the heart. That's what it means to spend time with Jesus in the scriptures, in prayer, but not just alone. You got to do that in community. And not just on Sundays, because honestly, Sundays is just half of it. The other half of it is Bible studies with other men and women throughout the week. Very, very important. If you're not doing that, the question is, are you actually being a disciple? Because when it comes to the Great Commission, um, when Jesus commanded his disciples to go make more disciples, he flat out told them, hey, teach people everything I've told you. So we're going to get together and eat some food here this afternoon. That's really important. That's a huge part of what we do as a church family. You've got to eat food if you're going to keep the Baptist shape going. <sighs> Eating food is not commanded in the Great Commission. Studying the Bible is. And so I want to challenge us. Fall in love with Jesus, and part of that is fall in love with His Word again. Spend time with Jesus. And when those moments happen in your life where you need boldness and you need courage, the fridge will be full, and you'll have something to give. Amen? Let's stop there. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you for your word. As we close, pray, God, that you continue to lead our hearts and our minds to the foot of your cross, to the doorway of that empty tomb. Give us the hope of heaven. God, we love you. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.